really appreciate the opportunity to come and uh, speak with you today. Um, I, I was telling Brother Hank a little while ago, uh, I, I spent the week jittery uh, to prepare for today. And uh, anyway, I, so I, I developed one thing, and then I developed another thing, and then I developed a third thing. And I got all kinds of notes over there in my bag from that. And as I was sitting here this morning and, and, and praying, um, uh, uh, something that happens once in a while, it's rather nerve-wracking, where, where the Lord says, uh, just leave those notes in your bag. Uh, there's something else I'd rather you spoke about. Uh, and I find that a very insecure place to be because there's something very comforting about having notes in front of you. So, okay, if you start to get crazy, then you can look at your notes. Um, but I, I was thinking this morning, uh, and, and the first chorus that we began uh, with really uh, kind of solidified things for me about contrasts. I wonder if there's anybody in here this morning that's in love. Is there somebody here that's in love? Well, I saw one hand go up, okay. Uh, first of all, I hope all you married people are in love. <laughs> there could be, well, I might have to leave right now. We may have started to fight. I've had the very blessed privilege of falling in love three times. On December 18, 1978, I fell in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. A couple months later, I fell in love with a very beautiful young lady, Anna Jane, who is uh, now my wife of 38 years. We were married in 1979. And then I have to confess, it was several years later, sometime into the early 80s, that I fell in love with this. It took longer. It shouldn't have taken that long, but it took longer. And the Bible is, is a book that shows us a lot of contrasts. And contrast can be a very good thing. Um, can you imagine trying to drive if there was no contrasts? If everything was exactly the same color? Even worse, if we only had one eye and no, had no depth perception. Uh, there'd be a lot more traffic accidents. Can you imagine trying to paint if there was no contrast? Can you imagine trying to write music if there was no contrast? the high notes and the low notes and the tempo changes and, and things like that. Contrast can be very, very useful. And God's Word gives us contrasts which are even more useful than any other contrast that we can think of. And I'd like you to turn with me this morning to Isaiah chapter 6. Isn't it interesting that we can open our Bibles to a passage that was written about 2,800 years ago? Like, what, what are 2,800 years? What does that even look like? How do you, you know, how do you quantify that? How do you look, how do you visualize it? 2,800 years ago, before we read this passage, shall we pray again? Father in heaven, we come to you, and we come to your word. And we confess readily, Father, that we have no abilities or faculties to help us uh, understand what you have revealed in your word. And yet, Father, despite the fact that these things are written in plain English, uh, we know that we need your spirit to guide our thoughts this morning, uh, what we think about, what we speak about, what we don't speak about. As our brother has already prayed, may this everything that's said and done this morning be led by thee for thee. And Lord Jesus Christ, we would approach you and thank you for taking our place at Calvary and bringing us to God so that these things that we can talk about are family matters. 
Thank you for giving us the ability to love you because you first loved us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Isaiah chapter 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Now, I tend to be a very visual person, so I have to stop when I read a verse like that and close my eyes and try to imagine it. I saw the Lord high and lifted up and sitting upon a temple. Were there clouds, stars? Were there planets visible and galaxies and and nebula, these various things? I, I wonder. doesn't say. But he did see the Lord. Whatever else he saw, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. What do they look like? (laughs) Artists have tried. Um, you, You see these creatures? The point is we don't need to know where God would have told us. They had six wings, and with with two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. I want to interrupt for just a moment. A number of years ago, my wife and I were over to a a music concert over in Halifax. Uh, It was being performed at uh, St. Mary's Basilica by the Halifax Chamber Choir. And they performed a a couple of pieces. Most of them I didn't recognize, but I loved the music. I loved good singing. And they they performed one piece where half of the choir was up in the loft at 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 the back of the church, up top, and the other half of the choir was in front. And, and, and quite a big building, if you've ever been in it. Very high ceilings. And uh, they would sing choruses back and forth to one another. It had an echo effect like you can't believe. And we were sitting about where Hank was sitting, in the middle and about halfway back, uh, sitting there. And it was just, I know the word awesome gets overused, but it was awesome. This music, this, uh, the, the, I had to look it up. They, called it, they call it, in the, the, the people that know about such things, Antiphony. Where, where, they, where they echo one another's verses and stuff back and forth like that. It's absolutely gorgeous. I think that's what we got here. Only it's not just in a man-made stone building. This is in the expanse of heaven, and the seraphim are flying back and forth, and they're singing back and forth to one there in antiphony. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. No wonder the posts of the door shook. Oh, I'd love to have heard that. You know what? I think we will. Then said I, verse 5, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the middle of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth, and he said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. When I got up this morning, um, I came face to face with one of the most miserable people I know while I was looking in the mirror. 
I don't know. There might be somebody here who was more miserable than I am. I don't know. And, and I'm not talking about being sad all the time, although we all have sad days. But I'm talking about how wretched this heart of mine is. And I'm talking about, even as a, as a Christian now, uh, I'll, be, I'll be 39 years old in Christ in, in December. Even as a Christian, the things that go on in my mind and the things that go on in the heart and the things that I, I look in the world and the things that I want and the things that are, are, are disloyal to my Savior and disrespectful of my wife. And yeah, that guy I see in the mirror every morning, I don't like him very much. He's not a nice guy. And what we have here, and what we had in the opening chorus, is this contrast. Here's Isaiah in the throne room of God, in the expanse of heaven, listening to the antiphonal singing of the, of the seraphim, and witnessing with his own eyes the Lord, of, the Lord of hosts. And he looks at himself and he goes, I, I, I've had it. I've got nothing. I'm empty. I'm bankrupt. I don't have anything to say. All I can do is weep and mourn. And what we see here in this is the grace of God. Because God looked at Isaiah and he said, I have a solution for you. We use the word grace. And it's not just a nice theological term. It's a characteristic of God where he looks at people in need, unable to provide for themselves and meets their need to a fuller extent than they're even aware of their need. That's grace. There's an old acrostic from years back, God's riches at Christ's expense. How much of those riches? What was the expense that Christ paid? That's really where it all, it all starts to magnify the grace of God. You know, I think that if every human being could see themselves as God sees them for just a moment... It would change every human being. I think that if I, as a believer, could see myself as God sees me, I'd be a different person. I wouldn't be so ungrateful. I wouldn't be so selfish. I wouldn't be so caught up with temporary things. If I could just see for just a, a moment myself as God sees me. Isaiah came here, and, and look at the contrast from verse 5 to verse 8. In verse 5, he's saying, woe is me. And he talks about his lips because he's, he's heard his own voice before. He's heard the things that have come out of, out of his mouth. And our Lord Jesus said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. He heard the things that came out of his heart. He heard the words of resentment. He heard the words of unkindness. He heard the words of cruelty. He heard the words of criticism. He heard the words of bitterness coming out of his own mouth, and they were coming out of his mouth because they were living in his heart. Woe was me. And so because Isaiah became aware that the problem was with his lips, God in his omniscience sent a solution to deal with his lips. And then the Lord says, I want somebody to go. And Isaiah, in a few verses, goes from woe is me to here am I, send me. There is nothing as productive as the grace of God to take an individual like Isaiah or like Rick and change him from what he was to what God can make him to be. We're going to see these complaints echoed a little bit further. Turn over to the book of Job, the book of Job, chapter 9. 
Job is a very special individual, and if you've read his book uh, a number of times and gotten to know him, uh, (laughs) there's more in the mirror there, isn't there? There's a lot about Job that looks very, very familiar. A person who had a good deal of integrity. Uh, God even, uh, I don't know, maybe the word brag isn't right, uh, but God even pointed out Job to Satan in the early chapters as, as somebody here, here, have you considered my servant Job? You want to see somebody, here's somebody to see. Have you considered him? He's perfect, he's upright, he shuns evil. But Job got to know himself throughout this dialogue. When the Lord took away the things that he was leaning on, depending on, Job got to know himself a little bit. And that's, you know, sometimes we wonder, why do tragedies happen? Uh, We're we're thinking our our hearts are breaking for, for folks in Texas right now and all that's going on. Our our hearts are breaking for folks in South Korea right now, and also in North Korea, who are under the oppression of a dictatorship there. Uh, We can go all over the world. We can think of situations all over the Middle East. We can think of uh, terrorism attacks throughout throughout Europe, and some of them are starting to come onto our continent. Uh, We can think of places where disease and hunger are, are running rampant, and we can see all these things, and we wonder, why? Oh, I hate the question, why? Because it's the one we can never answer. Why does God allow these things to happen? I know in my own, I can't speak for anybody else, but in my own circumstance, God had to strip away the things that I was leaning on so that I could really see myself for what I am and really see him for what he is. Because if we got something else to lean on, our moral fiber won't allow us to lean on God because salvation, faith in Christ, is not an intellectual decision, it's a moral one. I don't want to be accountable. It's not when they said we will not have this man to reign over us, it wasn't because they were questioning his ability to govern. They knew that there would be a moral component to his rule. And they didn't want that. Yeah, we want good economic management and we want all kinds of freebies and handouts and and whatever else. But moral, ah, I don't want that. We were talking about construction issues a little bit this morning. Can you imagine trying to build anything without absolute standards? There's a man up on the roof, and he's boarding in the roof, and his co-worker's down on the ground with a chop saw and a pile of boards. And the man on the roof hollers down, I need one 12 foot four. 12 foot long, four inches long. And the guy down on on the ground hauls out a measuring tape, and he measures out 12 foot 4, puts a pencil line, marks it with a square maybe, chops it with a saw, being careful to leave part of the pencil line on the board so that it is exactly 12 foot 4 long. How would that go if there was no absolute standard of measurement? What if the man on the roof, his 12 foot 4, was based on a different kind of an inch than the man on the ground with the 12 foot 4? How's that going to go? It's not going to go. If we start trying to build anything or construct anything, whether it's a society or a house or a highway or a bridge, if we don't have absolute standards, it isn't going to work. And it's pretty clear, looking at the newspaper, that society is not working because we've thrown out the moral absolutes. It's not working. Job continued along in the same lines as Isaiah. In Job chapter 9, in verse 25, 
Now my days are swifter than a post. I don't think he was talking about Canada Post. They flee away. They see no good. They are passed away as the swift ships, as the eagle that hastes to the prey. The swift ships. I was reading a, a book a few years ago about uh, battleships and how strategies of battle in the ancient world uh, dictated how they built their ships. Uh, the Viking ships were built to be able to run aground and, 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 and come off the beach really quick because they were quick hit-and-strike raiders. That's the way they did, built their ships. And so their style of warfare, they designed their ships accordingly. Uh, the Phoenicians built their ships for speed. And the Phoenician ships, every one of them had a big spike on the front of it. And I'm not talking about a six-inch spike like you put planks together with. I'm talking about a great big old metal thing that was on there. And their ships were built with speed. They had uh, sails. They looked side-on similar to a schooner, but their sails didn't go the same way. They went opposite ways. They had four sails, one going this way, one that way, one this way, and that way for maximum thrust and maximum speed because their strategy was to ram the opponent's ship. And they'd get that thing up to speed and they'd drive that front of that boat into the other, into the oppositions. And now they can't fight anymore because their boat is sinking. They're there with a bucket doing this, you know. The swift ships. I wonder if Job was thinking about the Phoenician ships. As the eagle that hastes to the prey. Oh, we could make all kinds of comments here. If I say I will forget my complaint, I will leave off of my heaviness and comfort myself. Hmm. In verse 27, uh, I have some memories that come to mind about drug use in my past life and alcohol and things like that because I wanted to forget my complaint. I wanted to leave off my heaviness. I wanted to comfort myself. If I can just put that stuff out of my mind, if I can just stupefy myself enough so that I can't think about those things anymore and, and just have a good time, um, then, then I'll be all right till you wake up the next morning. I am afraid, in verse 28, of all my sorrows. I know that thou will not hold me innocent. If I be wicked, why then labor I in vain? What is the point? If I wash myself with snow water and make my hands never so clean, yet thou shalt plunge me in the ditch, and mine own, my own clothes shall abhor me. And here's another contrast, very much like Isaiah's in Isaiah 6. For he is not a man as I am that I should answer him and we should come together in judgment. Here was his problem. The contrast was too great for him to deal with. I think everyone probably at some point in their life as a, as a young child looks up in the sky at night. And that's still, I recommend, a very good thing to do, to find a place where there's no ambient light and you can see the stars on a clear night. And just lay on your back in the picnic table in the backyard. Your neighbors might look out the window and go, who cares? Let them think what they want. And look up at the stars. And hear the echo of the Psalms, the heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, there was a movie with Jodie Foster uh, um, that came out a few years ago. I think it was called Contact. And, uh, and she was talking to a bunch of children. She was an astronomer. And she said about these stars, oh, this is perfect, thank you. I don't, we didn't plan this, did we? <laughs> She said, if, if, if there's no other life out there, it's an awful waste of space, isn't it? That's not a waste of space. The heavens declare the glory of God. There's nothing wasteful about that. 
And we look beyond these things and the, and the Hubble Bubble Telescope goes out there and takes pictures of things and, and we see more and more and, and, and they keep trying to come up with clues as to our existence and, and they go out further and all they see is more of the glory of God, but they ignore him, even as they did not like to retain God in their thoughts, as it says in the book of Romans. And as I looked up into that sky as a, as a boy, um, I, wasn't, I wasn't brought up in a Christian home. We went to church sometimes, but I'd look up in that sky as a boy and I'd look at that miserable young fellow in the mirror, so selfish, and I started to ask the question, is there more to life than this? Have you ever asked that question? I, I don't know everybody here. I don't know most of the people here. There might be somebody here that doesn't know my Lord Jesus as their Savior. Might be somebody here that hasn't fallen in love with him yet. Have you ever asked that question, if there's more to life than this? What are we going to do? We're going to get up tomorrow morning. Well, not tomorrow morning because it's a holiday. We're going to get up Tuesday morning and we're going to go to work. And we're going to do some stuff that has value to somebody else and they're going to give us some money for doing it. I got a job. We're going to go home at night. Or maybe we're going to mow the grass or we might wash some dishes or we might prepare a meal or, or we might uh, read our children a story and, and put them to bed. And then we'll sit down and we'll watch something on television perhaps or, or pick up a book or maybe we'll have some friends in and we'll, 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 pl we'll play a game and have some conversation and then we'll go to bed. Then Wednesday morning we're going to get up and do it all over again. And Thursday morning we get up and we do it all over again. And Friday morning, do it all over again. Am I, are you getting tired of me yet? <laughs> the cycle. Somebody get me out of this rut. There's got to be more to life than this. That's what Job was saying. That's what Isaiah was saying. That's what we would say when we are confronted with ourselves in the presence of God, when we see ourselves as God sees us. The contrast is so great. And then we are not just asking, is there more to life than this? Now we're stating there is something more to life than this. How can I get it? That's what Job was saying. He's not a man as I am, that we should come together and reason together in judgment. Uh, I know he's there. I know he's there. I knew God existed from the time I was seven or eight years old. But I didn't know how to find him. I didn't know how to talk to him. I didn't know where he sat. I didn't know what day of the week to be in what place so that I could talk to God and that I could hear him talking to me. We all have that sense. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us there's a, there's, eternity is in our hearts. I can go to the zoo and I can look at the primates that are in there. And yeah, they've got a lot of similarities. Uh, I think they say a chimpanzee is 95% of the genetic code uh, is, is like us. Well, when you look at the skeletal structure and you look at the way the muscles and the tendons and the ligaments and, and, and two eyes and two ears and, and nose and mouth and teeth and all those things, yeah, that's easy to account for 95%. That other 5% makes a big difference, doesn't it? Huge difference. You don't believe me? Go climb a tree and then jump to the next tree and grab it with your arm and jump to the next tree and grab it with your arm. You will find out just how different you are from a chimpanzee. <laughs> Real quick, probably. And then you'll be wishing that there was no such thing as gravity. But I digress. I know we're different than those things. I see these creatures and, and I enjoy animals. My wife has a horse and she loves her horse. Some days I think she loves the horse more than she loves me. Um, it's just enjoyment. 
and we've had cats, and we had a dog once, and parrots. I'm fascinated by parrots. I have no idea why. Um, But we look at them, and we see ourselves as being distinct. We are different than they are. We can think in abstract terms. We can pontificate and imagine what the future is going to be like. We're not just running on instincts and, 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 and a bit of basic two-dimensional logic. We imagine, we create, we look at a, we look at a piece of wood. Somebody looked at this oak tree and uh, made, a, made, a, made a, a very nice pulpit out of it. Somebody looked at a whole bunch of cedar trees and decided to line this building with it. We do that. We create. We are made in the image of God, and we want to create. We want to improve. We want to touch things and leave our fingerprints on them and, and, and make them better and improve them and change them. That's what we do. We, we can't help it. It's, it's born into us. And yet, when we see ourselves in this very distinct place, above, and I don't want to say better, but above the animals. Animals don't murder one another for no reason. I think I read somewhere maybe rats will, but that's about it. Oh, good, we've got something in common with the rats. Wonderful. But animals don't murder one another for a reason. Just out of envy and hate? No, they don't do that. It's all their, 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 their structure, whether they're a herd animal or a pack animal or a pride animal or whatever it is, uh, their, their structure is a whole lot different than ours. So we see ourselves as being part of and yet distinct from the creation in which we live and all living things. We look up in the sky at night and we're aware that there is a God of incredible intelligence, a God of incredible love. You look, you look at the way he puts things together and the relationship, and you see a, 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 a mother cat with the kittens and giving the kittens a little lick when a puppy comes up to you and jumps up and, and gives you a lick on the face. Uh, when, when I go see Janie's, uh, Janie's horse with her, I'll, I'll go over to Jewel and, and I'll hold my hand out and she'll go, snort. I don't like the smell of you. And then she's up to Janie and, and nuzzles Janie. And there's this little, it's the way a horse purrs. And, and then first thing, she sniff around Janie's pockets because she knows there might be a peppermint there somewhere. Jewel loves peppermints. And, and so you see this little bits of affection and all that, and you look up in that sky at night and say, the God who made all this, he must be incredible. But how can I approach him? Where is he? How can I find him? I promised Matt 12 o'clock, and I got 10 minutes. Verse 33. Now remember, we're going back a long time here, and Job is crying, neither is there any daysman betwixt us. There's a good old English word for in between. Now is there any daysman in between us that might lay his hand upon us both? Oh my. You think of the contrast. This is somebody with really, really long arms who can reach out and put one hand on the God of the universe and put another hand on me, put another hand on you and bring us together. The word here, uh, daysman, is, a, is, a, is an interesting word that we have a couple of uh, more modern equivalents that we would use. Uh, the word mediator is probably the best one. Somebody who comes in the middle 
And that person's job is to bring people together. That is that person's duty. And I won't say just their duty. It is their ability. Who can bring you and I to God? Who could do that? Oh, we might walk into a place and, and here's a man and he's got his collar on backwards and he's got credentials on the wall and, and so on. And, and, and he claims to be a mediator. He claims that he can bring me to God. But he's the same as I am. He's human. Cut him, he bleeds. Poke him, he squeaks. <laughs> he's human, the same as me. How can he bring me to God? He's, he's, he's down here where I am. What good is that? Or we might find some people who, who lead movements and so on, and they're, they're very eloquent, and they can inspire people. And, and after people go and they, they hear these people, and listen, they, they walk out the door, and they're all fired up and all charged up, and then they get a flat tire, and it's all over with. <laughs> yeah, emotion. So fleeting, isn't it? Turn in your Bibles, please, to... Now, here's where the not having notes part is a, is a problem. Oh my, I got a bunch of different ones here. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Our brother was uh, uh, quoting verse 3 from this portion this morning. Um, So in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 12, we're compassed with so great a cloud of witnesses. So those witnesses are in chapter 11. That's all these people who walked by faith and believed that there was a better city, believed that there was a God ruling that city, and, and wanted to be there. And they endured, as it says about Moses, as if they were seeing him who was invisible. And the way they went. And those people... They suffered death, they suffered torture, they lost homes and family and lives, they were shipwrecked, they lived in caves, they were freezing to death half the time, sweating death the other half of the time, and most of the time didn't have enough to eat. But they endured as seeing him who was invisible. <coughs> and then there are other witnesses, seeing we are compassed about with such a great cloud of witnesses, then we also have the witnesses that we've also talked about. These beautiful stars, this wonderful creation, those are all witnessing to us. They're all telling us something. And he says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us and let us run with patience. The race is set before us. Oh, I'm glad it doesn't stop there. Because all I have there is what Isaiah and what Job were complaining about is a list of things that I am unable to do. I cannot lay aside every weight. I don't have the ability to do that. I might be able to do a little temporary reform and kind of clean up my act a little bit. <coughs> I can't lay aside the sin that easily besets me. Well, I wish I could. It's a torment day to day, isn't it? And every one of us has at least one, that one sin that just hanging on there, isn't it? Can't do it. Let us run with patience or endurance. I was watching the little ones run around down in the coffee room this morning. I said to one of the little girls, I said, I can't run like that anymore because I'm old. <laughs> and it's true, I can't run anymore. Like I can make a half-hearted hobble across the street, but that's about the best I can manage anymore. Run the life of a Christian with endurance? Forget it. Not going to happen. 
with a race that is set before us. We can even know the course, but we can't do it. Do this and live, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. That's what God's done for us. So verse 2 continues, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher, the one who started it and the one who completed it, of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, thought nothing of it, and is set down at the right hand of God. Consider him that endured, our brother was reading this morning, such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. So here we have the means of coming to God, and we have the means of staying with God. The endurance is here. The power to live a victorious life over sin. Not every moment, but the power to, to come out on the winning side of the battles. I'll put it that way. Uh, it's all set before us. And it's all looking unto him. This has been going on for centuries. It went on way back when the children of Israel were bitten by serpents and Moses made a... a, 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 a <coughs> a cast of, of, of the serpent and put it up in a pole and said, look and live. It's been going on since then. It, the Lord Jesus said, and if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Look and live. Looking unto Jesus, it says here in our, in our verse, Hebrews 12 and verse 2. That's him. If you look to Jesus, if you don't know him, there are just two, things, there are just two real simple things he wants you to do. First of all, he wants you to do like Isaiah did, and like Job did, he wants you to see yourself the way he sees you. That requires a brutal level of honesty. That is very, very difficult to do because you and I have pride, and we feel we have to impress other people, and most of all, we don't want to be morally accountable to anyone. We've all got that. What he wants us to do, if we see ourselves the way he sees us, then something happens in the mind. There's a change of mind. The Bible word for that is repentance. It's a turning around. That's the way I was going. That's the way I wanted to go. But now I see it the way God sees it. And I see that it's a not, not a good way. And I see that it's a way that I don't want to go anymore. <coughs> My apologies. So I want to turn around. I don't want to go that way anymore. It's like you're going down the wrong lane of a highway and there's a truck full of logs coming at you. Something's going to happen. I don't want to go that way anymore. I want to turn around. But if I'm going to turn around, I've got to have somewhere to go. I'm not just going to turn around and, 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 and let the truck full of logs hit me in the back end of my car instead of the front end of my car. What good's that going to do? That's human reform. That's turning over a new leaf, and it doesn't work. We're just as vulnerable. It might just take a little longer for the truck to catch up to us. That's all that's going to happen in that scenario. But the other part is repentance towards God. This is Acts 20 and verse 21, repentance towards God, changing our mind, our path of direction, our, our course in life towards God, and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What's faith? Well, people say you've got to have faith. Faith in faith is pointless. It, what is your faith in? I, I, I want to give you a little illustration. I've been using this for a long time because I haven't, I haven't experienced anything better yet. 
Uh, when my oldest son, Luke, was five, four or five years old, he's 35 now. When Luke was four or five years old, we were living in, in uh, Greenwood in the Annapolis Valley, and we'd take them over to the, to the Greenwood pool sometimes for a swim when they had open family swimming. And so we were there. Luke never had any fear of anything. Unfortunately, he still doesn't. He looked at the boys up at the other end of the pool jumping off the diving board into the water, and it looked like a whole lot of fun to him, and he wanted to go jump off the board. He said, Daddy, can I go jump off there too? And I said, well, Luke, I said, you know, you're, you're this tall, and that water is twice as deep as Daddy is tall. I said, and, and you don't know how to swim. He'd kind of bob around like a cork a little bit if he held on to his hands, but really couldn't swim. I said, I don't think he could. Could you catch me? So problem solving, I mean, four-year-old kids coming up with a solution like this. He wanted me to tread water off the end of the diving board, and then he was going to jump into my arms. But he was determined he was going to jump off that diving board. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, I think I, I think I probably could. So anyway, so off he goes up the side of the pool, and all the boys are there, and, and I, I swam up, and I said, you know, could you cut us a little slack here for a moment? Sure. So they wanted to see this chubby little fellow get jump off the board. So Luke comes out to the end of the board. So it's a one-meter board. It's not very high. Well, a little about high as the state. But so he comes out to the end of the board with this tall. And here's Dad down here in the, in the water. And his enthusiasm just evaporated for a moment because he could see from his perspective that water, yeah, that is quite deep. He could see some other people in the water. He could see my feet were no near, near touching the bottom. And he had a little hesitation. But he did jump. You know why? Because he trusted me. He trusted me that I would catch him. The circumstances weren't appealing. The danger was real. But he trusted me. Well, I got both of his feet in the face and whatever. We, we managed it. It managed it. That's what Bible faith is. God, I'm a sinner. I don't want to go this way anymore. Can you catch me? God, can you catch me? Yes, I can. Because the sin that's holding you back, the sin that's causing you all the problems, the sin that's a danger, the sin that's the reason why there's going to be eternal judgment someday, said, I dealt with it. I dealt with it at Calvary. And if you'll trust me, it's all forgiven. It's all gone. So Isaiah looks up. One minute he's saying, woe is me. Next minute he's saying, here am I, send me. Job looks up and talks about, you know, there's nobody in between. But he comes to the end of that in chapter 42 of the book of Job. He said, I've heard of you with the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. And I repent. I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. He turned around. I believe that God, going back as far as Noah even, has always been saving people by grace. Abraham believed God and that was counted to him for his righteousness. That's what he wants you to do. He doesn't want you to buy a tie. I think I'm the only person here wearing a tie this morning. No, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Make me feel at home. <laughs> he doesn't want you to clean up your act. Not yet. First things first. You don't shingle a roof till you've poured the foundation of the house, right? He doesn't want you to clean up your act. He wants you to come in repentance and faith, and just trust him that what Christ did for you at Calvary, 
when he bore your sins in his own body on that cross, with those are exact words from the Bible, that you will just trust him, that he did everything I need, and everything I need, he did. And if you'll do that, then you might be an Isaiah, here am I, send me. Then you might be a Job who goes and offers up uh, 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 worship and, offer, and prayers for his children because it may be that they have sinned as well. And then he prays for his three friends because God said they had not spoken about him that which was right. God can change you. He doesn't make you something different. He doesn't want to change your height and whether you're left-handed or right-handed or any of that kind of stuff. What God wants to do and what God can do is make you the best you that you can be. Repent and believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Thank you for coming this morning. Thank you for your attention. Um, uh, like I said, I don't know anybody here. If there's somebody here and, and you don't know, if you haven't fallen in love with the Lord Jesus yet, if you'd like to talk about these things afterwards, you, you can just kind of give us one of these and somebody here that you know and trust maybe or myself and, and we can go somewhere quiet and we, uh, we can't save you. We're the same as you are. But we can open up this book and show you a few things in here that will help you come to the Savior for yourself. And then you can fall in love too. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the examples of uh, men like Isaiah and, and, uh, and Job and Paul uh, who wrote things for us that are not just words and not just creeds, but they are, uh, they are the living word of the living God to lead us to everlasting life. We thank you so much, Father, for the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was willing and that he was able to leave your side and come to this place and be willing to take our place at Calvary. We sang choruses and hymns about how great he is and how lovely he is and how wonderful he is. Uh, and, and none of them even come close to truly describing uh, the beauty that's in your son. He is altogether lovely. And Father, we commit this morning what has been said to your work, to your working and to your grace. Father, if there's somebody here that doesn't know the Lord Jesus yet, oh Lord, we pray for them. We pray you'd speak to their hearts and bring them to yourself. This we ask in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.